What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. With the return to office of Brazil's President Lula, many expected a return to his party's spendthrift social policies and the risk of recession. But this time around, Lula and his finance minister are pushing promising reforms, and investors are noticing. And we take a look at one particular kind of drone that's of growing importance for the war in Ukraine. Speedy, so-called first-person view drones can carry greater payloads, and their successes make for social media-friendly videos. First up, though. This weekend, the opening whistle will blow on a new season of Saudi Arabia's Pro League. If you've never heard of the country's top football league, that's no surprise. Until now, it's been pretty sleepy. But the de facto ruler, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and the kingdom's ruling class would like to change that. Saudi Arabia has been on a spending spree, paying megastar footballer Cristiano Ronaldo a reported $200 million to play with Saudi club Al Nasser. At the press conference announcing his signing earlier this year, Ronaldo said his work in Europe was done. I won everything. I played the most important clubs in Europe. And for me now, it's a new new challenge. I'm glad for that uh, Al Nasser gave me this opportunity to, to show and develop not only for the, for the football, but also for the generation, the young generation, the women's generation as well. Saudi Arabia has bought its way into England's Premier League. It's created a rival to the PGA Golf Tour. And despite its climate, it's landed the 2029 Asian Winter Games. In the Crown Prince's telling, putting Saudi sport squarely on the global stage is one way to modernize, to pave the way for a post-oil world, to draw tourists and investors. But many are saying it's nothing more than sports washing. So Saudi Arabia's been sinking billions of dollars into domestic and international sport. Miranda Mitra is international editor at The Economist. This is all part of a drive to try and diversify their economy. This is part of the Vision 2030 plan, which they've been pursuing for a few years now. Critics say that, no, that's only part of the story. Um, Really, this is about the kingdom trying to detract from its human rights record. Broadly, how is the money being spent? If you look at football, that's a particularly flashy example. Um, The Saudi Pro League, which starts its 23-24 season this weekend, used to be a relatively quiet backwater. And then this weekend, we're going to see some real superstars starting to play in that league. We saw Cristiano Ronaldo moved that league earlier in the year, but now we're going to have former Real Madrid striker Karim Benzema joining him, N'Golo Kante, and various other major talents. A Saudi-led group of investors 
Masters also owns Newcastle United in the English Premier League, and that season is also getting underway. But it's not just football that Saudi Arabia is interested in. They are big sponsors in Formula One, cycling. There are talks going on about tennis. There have been some very big bouts of boxing. There will be more. So it's a a real sort of scattergun of investments across the board. But why is that? Why does Saudi Arabia think this is the thing to be doing? A lot of it links back to that attempt at diversifying their economy away from oil. But also some of this may be about the vanity of Saudi elites, many of whom are are big sports fans. And there may be rivalry with neighbours in on this as well. Qatar and the UAE are also interested in big sports investors. And obviously Qatar held its big World Cup in December last year. So the region is starting to get more known for its sports investments, its sports activities, um, and it's becoming a bit of a hub. So as you say, partly about envy and partly about running sport as a business for the country. Yes, and there are also some social elements to this as well. In recent years, Saudi Arabia has made some social reforms. We finally saw that women were allowed to drive in 2018. And as part of that change and as part of the Vision 2030 plan, which is trying to also get more women into the labour force, we've seen backing for women's sports in the kingdom. And uh, FIFA actually gave the Saudi Arabian women's team its first FIFA ranking earlier this year. So a little bit of trying to even things up and possibly there's a thought that that will make it more attractive for female tourists and other other female visitors to go. Two questions there about whether it will work financially and whether it will accomplish its social goals. Let's start with the money. Is this a smart plan, do you reckon? This whole plan, I think, faces two big risks. And the first is obviously that its business models may not work. Saudi Arabia's had some success with Newcastle already. We saw it escape the relegation zone. And then obviously it's going to be playing in the Champions League this season, which is you know fantastic for fans. But Across the board, they're now paying a lot of these sporting megastars absolutely enormous sums of money. And domestically, Saudi Arabia's got to try and ensure that in its Saudi Pro League, it doesn't face some of the same problems that China had when it tried to revamp its own domestic football league in the past decade or so. With China, you saw, for example, some of the big names grumbling about the standard of football. And then another problem that Saudi Arabia might have in all of this is that the size of its population, the size of its domestic audience for these sports and these sporting events is relatively small. It's a population of 36 million people. And you mentioned two risks. What's the second? So the other risk is obviously that Saudi Arabia faces a big backlash from a lot of this investment. Sport can be a very sensitive industry in which to invest. And Saudi Arabia's status as an autocratic state complicates its investments in sport. Critics point to its dearth of democratic freedoms, its suppression of women's and gay rights. No one's forgotten the gruesome murder of Jamal Khashoggi a few years ago. And of course, there's the role of Saudi Arabia in in the war in Yemen. Several human rights groups and others have accused the Saudis of sports washing. And when big sporting announcements uh, are made that involve them, those kind of criticisms come up again. So it's possible that involvement in sports, while it can shine a bit of a spotlight on Saudi Arabia, the difficulty is that that spotlight sometimes illuminates things that they might not want illuminated. And so does that part of things look like it's working, that the rest of the sporting world is willing to take Saudi Arabia at face value as a sporting giant in spite of all that? 
So it doesn't look as though Saudi Arabia's autocratic politics will prevent it from taking a growing role in global sports, but its reputation may make deals trickier. A proposed merger between the PGA Tour, the golfing body, and Live Golf, which is a Saudi upstart golfing body, as well as DP World, a European one, uh, has created a bit of a stink, and that's being assessed by the US Justice Department to see if it violates antitrust laws. It's conceivable that there may be other problems that come up, other leagues, other owners that don't wish to go along with the inconveniences of working with the Saudis. And what about for sports more broadly, though? What changes when there is such a deep-pocketed, interested party? It's interesting because the surge in capital from the kingdom is part of a rise of a new cohort of sovereign and private equity funding that's been going into sports in recent years. Ownership rules in certain leagues have been liberalized so that minority stakes can be taken by some of these entities. And at the same time, we're also seeing a lot of digital disruption as people cut cords and don't want to pay for expensive cable TV packages anymore. And that's been disrupting the economics around sports. The Saudi sports purge overall reflects some dynamics within the kingdom, a new flood of petrodollars, the crown prince's ambition to restore his reputation potentially, but they also reflect a sense that there's a bit of a window of opportunity at the moment in global sports. You can grab bigger and newer audiences and you know potentially reinvent the industry in some ways. Miranda, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Jason. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist. Last year, when Brazil's left-wing president, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, universally known as Lula, was elected to a third term, plenty of Brazilians were ecstatic. But investors shuddered. They feared Lula would prioritize social spending over fiscal responsibility. That's because the last time Lula's Workers' Party was in office, it spent its way into a deep recession. When Lula appointed a longtime loyalist, Fernando Haddadji, as finance minister, investors were even more spooked. But now they're changing their tune. Eight months into his term, markets are warming up to Lula's administration. Ana Lankis is a Latin America correspondent for The Economist. In a recent poll of 94 Brazilian fund managers and analysts, just 44% had an unfavorable view of government. That's down from 90% in March. Then last month, Fitch, the ratings agency, upgraded Brazil's long-term foreign currency debt for the first time since it was downgraded in 2018. In a weekly survey of economists and bankers by the central bank, predictions of GDP growth have increased by quite a lot. So people are expecting the economy to grow more than they were at the start of the year. So why all this optimism? 
Part of this is just the global context working in Brazil's favor. So first, Russia's invasion of Ukraine put grain supplies from two of the world's largest grain producers at risk, and that increased demand for Brazil's grains. And demand from China increased after the country lifted pandemic restrictions. So this year alone, soybean exports could account for a fifth of economic growth. Second, investors are increasingly looking to emerging markets, partly because there's a possibility that the U.S. might lower interest rates next year. And because of rising tensions between the U.S. and China, some money is being pulled out of China and reinvested in other markets like Brazil. So last year, Brazil got over $91 billion of foreign direct investment which made it the fifth largest investment destination in the world. And that was double the amount Brazil received in 2021. All of this happened despite global foreign direct investment flows in 2022 falling by 12% year on year. So as you say, this sounds like things that are happening in the world rather than uh, things that Brazil is doing. Well, global events have made a difference, but there are also things happening in Brazil that are boosting the economy. So first, Brazil's central bank is independent. That's actually fairly new. And that means that it has been able to do the politically unpopular thing of having a super high interest rate, which has brought inflation down significantly over the past few years. So inflation was 12% last April, and now it's just over 3%. Brazil started tightening interest rates earlier than the US or Europe, but it's also now starting to ease the cycle earlier too. And Lula's government is making reforms that could spur economic growth as well. And what reforms are they? Investors were worried about Fernando Haddad, who's Lula's finance minister. But now many economists are crediting him for lots of the new optimism because he's behind two major reforms that could put Brazil's economy on a more stable footing. O número mínimo para passar a ideia, tanto quanto aconteceu com o marco fiscal, here Hadaji's talking about the tax reform to reporters, and what he's saying is that this is not about one government. He's describing the reform as a long-term economic project that will improve the finances of Brazil. So you can see why with language like that, economists are optimistic about him. What is the meat of the tax reform then? So right now, the federal government, Brazil's 27 states... And over 5,000 municipalities can set their own taxes. And it's a major burden on businesses. So in 2019, the World Bank estimated that companies take around 1,500 hours per year to comply with Brazilian tax law. And the global average is 233 hours. So what this tax reform does is merge five major taxes on goods and services into two value-added taxes, one federal and one local. And the lower house passed a constitutional amendment to push through the tax reform in July, which is a really big deal because tax reform has been discussed in the Brazilian Congress for 30 years. And it's expected to pass the upper house later this year. GDP could grow by 1.5% just in the first year of implementation, according to one estimate. And you mentioned that Mr. Hadaji was behind two reforms. What's the other one? The other thing that people are excited about is changes to Brazil's fiscal framework. Remember that we said earlier that Brazil went through a really deep economic crisis in the mid-2010s? That was because spending got totally out of control. So Congress passed a really rigid spending cap in 2016. The problem is that it was so rigid that it's basically consistently been broken. 
Now Congress is replacing the cap with a much more flexible rule, which would limit increases in government spending to 70% of the previous year's revenue growth. And the goal is to balance the budget and stabilize Brazil's gross public debt. Okay, so some global tailwinds and some tax reform and some sensible spending and investors are super keen on Brazil. Do you think that optimism is well-placed? So I think we should be cautiously optimistic because Brazil has consistently punched under its weight. If you look at the kind of motors that make an economy grow, like productivity, which is basically how much output you're getting per worker in the economy, is very low in Brazil. Outside of agriculture, it has basically not grown in decades. Productivity is influenced by things like education, and Brazil's educational outcomes are very poor. And the tax reform and the fiscal reform aren't actually guaranteed yet. Lots of sectors in the economy are asking for special treatment, and the more exemptions are given, the higher the overall rate will be. So it means that the tax reform could simplify things, but the burden could still be really, really high. And then the last thing I would say is that the fiscal framework, the idea is that the government will basically balance its budget by increasing revenues, by doing things like clamping down on tax evasion. But the government is probably overestimating how much money it can actually recover in its first year. So... All of that just to say that I think it will take more than favorable global tailwinds and Mr. Hadaji's prowess to permanently buck Brazil's long-term trend. Thanks very much for your time, Anna. Thanks, Jason. Many discussions around the war in Ukraine and many pleas from President Volodymyr Zelensky have centered on the big stuff of battle. Fighter jets, tanks, long-range missiles. But the weapon that's transformed this 21st century fight is more humble than all that. Drones. The typical commercial quadcopter types are cheap and great for reconnaissance or dropping small munitions, such as grenades. But one variant in particular has now come to the fore first-person view, or FPV, drones. These speedier, chunkier types give their operators a kind of drone's eye view of their paths. Social media abound with videos, often set to thumping techno music, of FPV drones chasing down Russian tanks from the rear, and then cutting out as they deliver their explosive payloads. (laughs) Ukraine calls them kamikaze drones, But it's not just Ukraine that's putting them to use. These drones are extremely consequential because they are so cheap and so easy to make and can be produced in such large number that they have an impact which is far greater than some of the imported sophisticated weapon systems that we've seen so far. David Hambling writes about defense technology for The Economist. Some analysts suggest that what we might be looking at here is something which is on the lines of the machine gun and how that changed warfare during World War I. And we've talked a lot on the show about how commercial drones, quadcopters, have been used in intelligence and on the battlefield for years. What's different about these FPVs then? FPVs are basically faster, cheaper, less sophisticated versions of the sort of DJI Mavic drones that are used extensively on both sides. They're originally designed for racing, so they've got very powerful motors. But rather than just going fast, you can use that to carry a heavier payload. So rather than just carrying one small grenade, you can carry a big anti-tank warhead 
and that makes them much more effective as weapons. And some people have described FPVs as the poor man's javelin because it has a similar capability to deliver a warhead with high precision several miles away. But it, actually, in some ways, they're better than a javelin because it's got a longer range, out to about eight miles. Uh, and unlike javelin, it can go around corners and behind hills and hit things which are out of sight of the operator when it's launched. So how effective then? How good are these things on the battlefield? Clearly, we've got lots of videos showing successful strikes. What we don't have are the videos showing the failed strikes. Feedback from operators is suggesting that there's a kill rate of something between 30 and 80%, which is quite a big range. Now, that's not nearly as good as something like a javelin, where you lock on the target and pull the trigger, you've got something like a 90% chance of destroying the target. But the real difference is the price, because these are costing typically 300 to $500. You can have them in, in large quantities uh, and you can fire a lot. So a $500 FPV compared to a Javelin missile at something like $190,000, even if you miss a few, you're still going to kill a lot more with a uh, million dollars worth of FPVs than a million dollars worth of Javelins. Javelins are really confined to high-value targets like tanks and artillery, whereas FPVs you can use against personnel carriers, trucks, and uh, even infantry in trenches. I guess, though, the trade-off is, as you describe, uh, if they're cheaper, you can just throw a lot more of them at the problem if they're also not quite as useful. Certainly, you need to use more of them. Initially, we saw these being turned out in ones and twos and then batches of ten or a dozen. There's a Ukrainian non-profit group called Eskadrone. They were producing them a few hundred a month. They say their production is now up to 1,500 a month, but they want to take it higher, up to several thousand. And there are a number of other Ukrainian groups who are producing in similar numbers. And on the Russian side, there's also groups who were producing hundreds and who say they are now producing thousands per month. So really, we're going to see an awful lot of these fielded on both sides. In Ukraine, these aren't coming through the government. These are coming through volunteer organisations. They say every cellar in Kiev has got someone building FPV drones in it. And there's similar large-scale operations in Russia. But every time we talk about weaponry, there is always this cat and mouse game. Surely if both sides are using these things, getting better with them, then defense against them must also be getting better too? The argument goes that every weapon will inevitably draw a countermeasure which will nullify it. With jamming, it is very much a cat and mouse game uh, that it's possible to jam a drone by interfering with the radio command signal. And we've seen several instances in the past where jamming has worked for a while and then the drones have been tweaked slightly uh, and they start working again. FPVs are also relatively difficult to jam, partly because they use analogue video, which is harder than digital to mess up, and partly because they fly very low and jamming tends to be line of sight. So something that's sticking very close to the ground is quite difficult to jam. Some kind of countermeasure may turn up eventually, but so far they're having it pretty much their own way and doing a lot of damage. We've spoken in the past and you've suggested that drones might be the future of warfare. It, it sounds more like this specific kind of drone might more be the future of warfare. Certainly these are proving a breakout success in the conflict so far because they are so easily acquired. 
But the type is also evolving because the technology is moving on. One of the big challenges with FPVs is operator training. It takes several weeks to train someone how to use them effectively so the drones aren't just wasted. The Russians think they can get this training down to about two weeks. That might be quite optimistic. But in their latest batch of drones delivered under an initiative called Army of Drones, the Ukrainian government says they started incorporating artificial intelligence into theirs. Now, that might mean that we're going to start seeing smart drones, which uh, all the operator has to do uh, is put an X on the target and it will then do all the hard work of tracking it and homing in on it. When that happens, we could see a lot more drones hitting targets a lot more effectively with a lot less training. So, uh, yeah, I think the ripples of this will go very far outside this conflict. Thanks very much for joining us, David. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors are Chris Impey and Jat Gill. Our deputy editor is John Joe Devlin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe, with help this week from Johnny Allen and Timo Saila. Our senior producers are Sam Westron and Rory Galloway. Our senior creative producer is William Warren. Our producers are Alizé Jean-Baptiste, Kevin Kaners, Barkley Bram, and Sarah Lorniuk, with extra production help this week from Maggie Kadifa, Peter Grenitz, and Benji Guy. We'll all see you back here on Monday. to write for work want to improve bolster your skills with economist education six-week online course you'll explore the craft of writing and learn from the economist editors how to engage and persuade whether it's vibrant memos pithy social media posts or storytelling with data and as a listener enjoy a 15 percent discount with the code writing so sign up now at economist.com forward slash business writing 